0: Wishes to speak to us?
1: Oh, great empress, Flavia Flava Flave Magna Representa. It is I, your royal couturier.
0: My royal what?
1: Your couturier.
0: Did you just say something dirty to me?
1: No, 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 royal empress. I am the one who picks out your clothes.
0: Oh, you had me going for a second. So, what's that thing you're holding?
1: These are something new. They are called... Pants.
0: Why is it called pants? There's only one garment there.
1: I'm not sure. I've never really thought about it.
0: One shirt, two shirts. One jacket, two jackets. How can there be one pants?
1: It might be a mistake to get bogged down about this.
0: I know, but things like this drive me crazy. Okay, what does one do with pants?
1: You put one leg in here. And the other leg in here. And, and then you pull them up over your n- nether parts.
0: <laughs> You're a funny guy. But seriously, what do you do with them?
1: That's really what you do. Here, try them on, Your Grace. They're going to look great. You're one of the few women who can really wear yellow.
0: Okay. <laughs> Ugh. Oh, my God. This feels so w- weird. I, I think I'm going to pass out. My, my royal business, it's suffocating. This is evil wizardry.
1: Stay calm. Just breathe into it. Uh, relax.
0: Okay, okay, okay. <sighs> you know, these are not so bad. I mean, I can really walk around in these.
1: Right, Now, as long as we're making changes, can we talk about a different kind of really fun top? Because what are we trying to say here? Wait,
0: back to the pants.
1: Can we lose the pleats? Two minutes ago, you didn't know from pants. Now you're a pleat expert.
0: It's just, I look like somebody's dad on the first day of middle school.
1: Hey, can I show you these? They're called jorts.
0: (gasps) Seize him! Behead him! Also, could somebody call Capital One and block payment on these? On today's show, a salute to women in pants. And now the first man to wear a romper on public access television... Colin McEnroe.
2: Yeah, I really am sort of in the vanguard of the guy romper. But that's not what this show is about. This show is about women in pants. And let me just um, tell you how we came to do this. Um, And it is the case uh, that our producer, Josh Malaya, uh, he's the producer of this particular episode. And I think it began with his discovery of the person you're going to hear at the end of the show, Annie Smith Peck, who uh, was a mountaineer uh, and a mountaineer uh, at a time when women who The the very small group of women who attempted to be mountaineers did their mountaineering in dresses or skirts or whatever. They just they didn't wear pants. One one didn't. And she is notable mainly for her her conquests of various mountain peaks like the Matterhorn and stuff like that. But she also she switched to pants. It was quite a scandal, though, (laughs) like all these people are very upset that this woman had the audacity to be mountain climbing in pants. And that got us thinking, like we won't get Josh thinking actually. <laughs> but so what is that all about? I mean, why does it why did anybody ever care whether women wore pants or not? Because for centuries, for millennia, really people cared whether women wore pants or not, and they usually cared in the negative, as it were. So, we've assembled, as usual, a a group of very interesting experts to talk about this. Uh, Joining us by phone is Kathleen Cooper, Virginia-based writer whose work has appeared in The Toast, The Airship, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. Uh, Also joining us by phone is Gail Fisher, Associate Professor of History at Salem State University, and author of Pantaloons and Power, a 19th Century Dress Reform in the United States. So, Kathleen uh, Cooper, I'm going to begin with you, get us started here. So uh, we really do, for the most part, think about women in pants as a relatively recent, shall we say, maybe even 19th century, uh, and afterwards, dress reform. But the first women in pants go back thousands of years, right? It's what Herodotus tells us about the Amazons. So um,
3: That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, um, Ancient Scythians that the Amazons are based on um, wore pants because they were horseback riders. And if you've ever ridden a horse bareback without um, a blanket or a saddle with bare legs, you would agree that you would definitely want to wear something between you and itchy horse hair. So the Scythian women invented pants so that they could ride on horseback.
2: Um, so you, you would think that maybe under the circumstances, because people didn't stop wearing horses or climbing mountains or doing lots of other things, that pants would really just take off at that point. But they did the other, the opposite, right? They kind of, for women anyway, they they went underground for a long, long time. A, How long? A long,
3: long time. It was, in, a, in many cases, illegal for women to wear um, pants in the Western world. They could be subject to fine or imprisonment um, or, or worse even. So women would wear men's clothes to join the army or join the Navy or pass as men, but you wouldn't want to get caught because you'd get in big trouble.
2: Yeah, no, I want to explore this a little bit because I think this is the thing that I'm missing is an overarching way of understanding this. And Gail Fisher, I'm I'm going to turn to you for a second and, and ask, why is this? I mean, it seems like there's sort of a couple of different possible things going on. One of them would be that women in pants are sexualized in some way because you can see more of their below the waistness. Uh, is that why? Was that the reason? Does anybody know why it was so taboo for women to wear pants?
4: One of the reasons that is stated and restated almost every time women put on pants is the Bible says women cannot wear what men wear, and men cannot wear what women wear. And so that was kind of the default argument. The Bible says women can't wear men's clothes, and pants are a male garment, so women can't wear that. As far as it being sexualized, it's kind of a gray area there. People were more concerned about the power that came along with wearing pants than they were about the sexiness although when it comes to underpants prostitutes were the first women in the in the west where what we would call underwear so that's sexy
2: Right. That's sexy. But, uh, well, first of all, when we talk about power, Gail, I mean, it's right there in a very familiar trope or uh, idiom, you know, who wears the pants in the family. And so the exactly. pants, pants are symbolic of power in that situation. Who has control? You wear pants, you're in control. But uh, in, in a way, I feel like we st- I don't know the root of that somehow. I mean, to say that it's in the Bible, well, there's lots of things in the Bible that everybody feels pretty free to ignore. So this must have had some special power to it.
4: It becomes one of those things that we all know. It becomes part of the culture in the West that pants are a male garment. And by the time we get to the 18th and 19th century, men have been wearing pants for centuries. And so everyone knows that men have always worn pants, even though, of course, it's not true, but it feels true. And most people believe that, again, in the West, when the women's rights women, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and their group tried to wear pants, they said, hey, we're not wearing men's pants. We're wearing pants that women in um, the Far East, harem pants. And those women have no power, and they have less power than we do. So what we're really putting on is not a male garment but a powerless female garment.
3: Hmm. But
4: in the West, um, when people looked at them in New York and Oneida and wherever they traveled, they didn't see powerless harem pants. They saw women wearing pants and only men wore pants. And they saw women trying to take power away from men.
2: Yeah, so let's, Let's talk some more about that. And so Kathleen Cooper, one way that we can look at this, one way we can talk about maybe the meaning of who wears the pants uh, is that if you, there are a lot of things, a lot of jobs, a lot of roles that are hard to play if you're not wearing pants, if you're wearing a skirt, if you're wearing a long skirt. Uh, they're just things that are more difficult to do. So if you want a structure where women uh, stay home and have babies and don't compete with men for work and don't compete in men. Male spheres. Um, one way to do that is to dress them in this kind of impractical way, right?
3: Exactly. And so, when women wanted, uh, of course, when women wanted to do things that they weren't supposed to do, then they would wear pants to to do it and to get away with something. Disguise themselves as men. Um, they did that in the old west. They would dress as pants and work in the in the copper mines and the gold mines and silver mines. They worked in logging camps. They um, they did all sorts of stuff, and they wore they wore pants to do it because being a, wearing a dress would be impractical. And also there were really not very many jobs for women in the West, and so they had women, you know, people have to eat. So they did what they had to do to get by, and they would wear pants to do it.
2: So, yes, we, we should talk a little bit more about this. You said when women want to do things that they're not supposed to do. This sometimes involves... Infiltrating a man's world, right, I exactly. mean like you should maybe talk about the British Navy or, or the American Civil War
3: okay, well, in the um British Navy, they obviously had very lax recruitment standards because it was mainly um could you haul on a rope and could you you know row a boat and then come on board and uh, a great many women would join the Navy wearing pants, and um well one of them um uh, would actually got a um, a pension from the navy because she um, was a, quite notorious Hannah Snell for winning uh, you know serving in the navy for a number of years and without being discovered because she was so so good at pretending to be a man.
2: Um, so and so, we have that. We have, um, and we've talked about this on other shows, uh, this phenomenon of women fighting in the Civil War disguised uh, as men and therefore wearing pants, too. That's another exactly. part of
3: this. Exactly. There were over 400 documented cases of women that served during the Civil War who got pensions as soldiers and even more served that weren't discovered.
2: So, Gail Fisher, let's come back to this notion of reform. But I think the first thing that we have to say is that, that, that the way that men dressed in, say, the 1700s uh, wasn't—I mean, we even think of some of the portraits and things that we're familiar with from the 1700s. It wasn't necessarily lean, mean, and practical, right? I mean, uh, the way that we think of men dressing now is a relatively recent arrival.
4: The practicality? I'm sorry, I'm uh, missing the point of the question, well, whether I, or not I, pants are more practical than skirts?
2: No, I'm thinking about, I mean, in other words, that male fashions were kind of uh, sumptuous, and yes. uh, yeah, that, so elaborate on that. The, the, let's say, in the, going back to the 1700s and before, male fashions weren't male the way we think of male now.
4: Right, but we don't even have to go back that far. One of the distinctions between women who disguise themselves as men and the women that I look at who wore pants is that most of the women I look at never disguised, hid the fact that they were women while wearing pants. And that puts them in a public eye in a very different way. And one of my favorites who served in the Civil War was Dr. Mary Walker. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Walker put on men's clothes but she always insisted that she was a woman. Now, when she put on men's clothes, she put on men's trousers, men's shoes, men's shirts with the high collar that goes up to the chin. She puts on the tie, she puts on the vest and the top coat. And I look at her wearing that outfit and I look at women in their long dresses. And I think Mary's you're not really looking that much more comfortable or able to do more things than the woman who's dressed in her daily garb. Like, can you imagine wearing, you know, a stiff starched collar that holds your neck in and a, and a necktie? That's not comfort.
2: No. Is it? No, no. We we do that at Public Radio. It's something Robert Siegel started, but it, it's not comfortable, I, I can tell you that. Um, is it more practical than a dress? Exactly. So Kathleen Cooper, one of the—I mean, there's lots of reasons why it might make sense for women to want to wear pants, but one of the ways this starts is the, what what they are wearing— prior to, to any kind of reform movement, is not only uncomfortable and less suited for action, it's really unhealthy, right? I mean, they're being squeezed by corsets. Right. And, yeah, go ahead. You, you pick up the thread there.
3: Exactly, because they were wearing corsets, which um, would squeeze your inner, um, your, you know, your waist really tight so you couldn't breathe and you couldn't walk very fast, and would move your internal organs into you know, weird shapes just so you could have a tiny waist. So it's actually proven to be unhealthy, not just for your insides, but for your back and your bones. Um, so you know, the rational dress people argued that it was unhealthy because you know you just couldn't walk, you, you couldn't, you couldn't do hardly anything, and so they argued that one, get rid of corsets, and two, have more rational dress, and um, um, they argued that long skirts dry, dragging on the ground were unsanitary and picking up dirt and horse manure and all sorts of other um, gross things. So, you know, their argument was that um, pants or bloomers would be healthier in all ways. You wouldn't be wearing a corset. You'd be able to walk and exercise. And uh, at about um, in the 1880s, there began to be more of a culture of of health and personal hygiene, and those people would argue that um, getting rid of corsets and having more rational dress so that people could exercise and walk more freely would be healthier for everyone.
2: Um, Gill Fisher, I'm also guessing that uh, if you're wearing a long dress and multiple petticoats and God knows what else under there, that it's it's kind of an elaborate affair to use the bathroom. So did, did women just, like, hold it more? Did they go to the bathroom less often?
4: News <laughs> is um, a wonderful diary entry woman, written by a woman going west, you know, on the westward Trail. She describes how women would use the facilities, as it were. Because of the long full skirts, that women were wearing, what they would do is they would stand together in a circle. So essentially creating a wall and one of the women would be in the middle taking care of business and the other women with their skirts standing in the circle were protecting her from any prying eye. So this is why women don't start wearing what we call underpants for a long time because To hold up all of that weight of the skirts, any um, woman who's worn a long dress for her wedding knows that trying to go to the bathroom while holding up all of those layers and pulling down underpants and um, tights or whatever else you might be wearing is a very tricky maneuver. So if you're not wearing anything underneath, you just lift up the skirts and squat.
2: There you go. And so you're
4: lucky enough to have um, uh, women standing around creating a, an instant quarter-potting, if you will, um, uh, so much better.
2: Right, a lot of teamwork involved there. Exactly. So, so Gail Fisher, speaking of teamwork— One of the things that you write is that when this dress reform movement of the late 18th and early 19th century really got going, it wasn't one group of people. It wasn't, say, suffragettes. It wasn't that it was a lot a coalition, sort of an informal coalition, I guess, of all kinds of different people who, who wanted to change the way women dressed. Talk about that that group of that diverse group of people.
4: First, I make a distinction between wanting to change the way women dress, because that's a whole nother category, and wanting women to wear pants. Mm-hmm. Because there were some health reformers who were advocating a looser fitting dress, but not going for pants. So the different groups wanting women to wear pants. And start with the women's rights movement, where again, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Kitty Stanton, Lucy Stone, they adopt the pants because for practical reasons, they say. Elizabeth Smith Miller, who was Elizabeth Cady Stanton's cousin, comes into Seneca Falls wearing um, pants, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton sees them, and she thinks they're just great. And so uh, she communicates this to um, Amelia Bloomer, who writes for The Lily, oh, actually, who publishes The Lily, which is a temperance newspaper, and also published other reform issues. And um, Amelia Bloomer writes about the pants. But the argument that they're making at this time is that it's more practical for women as wives and mothers in the home. So if you're wearing a long skirt and you're holding a crying baby in one arm and you're holding a pitcher of water in the other arm and you have to go upstairs or downstairs and you're wearing a long skirt, That's very dangerous. But if you're wearing these these plumber outfits, which have pants, you can easily go up and down the stairs, not trip, not kill the baby, not spill the water. So they were making the argument that it made things better for women as women in the home. They were very adamant that they were not trying to take something away from men in wearing pants. But they only wore it for like two or three years. Evidently, it wasn't particularly attractive. Susan B. Anthony writes to Lucy Stone. And Lucy Stone apparently is the only one that really looked good in this um, outfit. <laughs> Susan B. Anthony writes to Lucy Stone and she says, Lucy, Lucy, what am I going to do? Every time I put on um, the reform outfit, the American costume, the bloomer costume, um, and go on stage, no one hears what I have to say. Say. They're all looking at what I'm wearing and commenting on what I'm wearing and what I have to say is so much more important than the outfit I'm wearing. And uh, Lucy Stone says, Susan, it's okay. You can take it off. <laughs> you don't have to wear it anymore. <laughs>
2: All right. So, yeah, you don't want uh, your pants or anything else to become to, to dominate your message. So, Kathleen, you know, Gail just outlined a reason why a, a fundamentally conservative point of view about women, that they belong in the home, taking care of babies, uh, might still be an argument for women in pants or pantaloons or bloomers or whatever we're going we're gonna to call them. But there was Kathleen Cooper kind of an anti uh, and uh, pants and pro corset conservative movement too. What did they say?
3: Oh, they said that it would um, it would wreck the family. That men would no longer be attracted to women, and that women who wore pants would not be able to get married. It would um, it would turn them into um, hermaphrodites. It would it would just be a horrible horrible thing.
2: All right. Well, on that shooting note, we're going to end this section of the show. Uh, We're going to take a little break. Uh, We want to thank very much Gail Fisher, associate professor uh, of history at Salem State University uh, and author of Pantaloons and Power, a 19th century dress reform in the United States. We're going to move uh, next into the 20th century. Uh, Kathleen Cooper will be back with us. You'll be meeting other guests along the way, too.
5: Guess you want to know what I
0: wear. We
2: do. All right, we're back uh with our salute to women in pants. Uh, still with us is Kathleen Cooper, a Virginia-based writer, whose work has appeared at The Toast, The Airstrip, The Washington Post, and other places. Um, she has written about this in particular for The Toast. Uh, Kathleen, uh, we want to move now to the 20th century. Um, everything that Gil and you were telling us about the 19th and 18th century would make us think that the tide of reform, some of which was based on health, uh, some of which was based on on, on women's suffrage and women's empowerment, uh, some of it was was driven by religious reform movements, that all that, this huge tidal wave, would have settled the question. But really, as we go into the 20th century, although you can find pictures of women in pants from 1910 and 1920 and 1930, the trouser question really wasn't at rest yet. What was going on?
3: Well, what really happened was that Women got more involved in sports and in education, and so they were wearing pants to play sports, basketball, golf, baseball, um, and other things. But they hadn't really gotten into wearing pants in public yet. It was still considered shocking and a little bit avant-garde. And in the beginning of the 20th century, Coco Chanel and other designers showed pants for evening for women. They were shown as casual dress. Or evening dress, but it was always considered a little bit shocking didn 't really start to be commonplace until about World War One, where women wore pants to, um, to fill the roles that men off at war um, were doing, so they were streetcar conductors and they worked in factories and they did other jobs that men who were away at war would do. but then when the men came back. Then women were fired and then they were told, literally told, go back and wear dresses again.
2: Right. So on the sports front, I just want to say that that was also a moving target uh, in the sense that I was – I had many friends on the Yale uh, women's lacrosse team and Yale women's field hockey team in the 1970s when I attended there, and I think they were still wearing skirts uh, for both those sports. But your point is, still, that when the rules started to be if a woman was called upon to do something that a man typically did, like take over a job during one of the world wars, or if a woman was doing something—for example, there are pictures, even older pictures, of Queen Elizabeth II when she's either on. On safari or she's at the hunt or whatever it is that they do uh where she's wearing trousers so, right. so so you could wear trousers but there had to be a good reason for it
3: exactly if you were playing basketball or you were playing you know um, a game where you had to wear pants then it was perfectly okay but even so in 1896 when women wore pants to play basketball, no men were allowed in the first intercollegiate game. No men were allowed to buy tickets. Women, only women could go or were allowed to buy tickets to go see the game.
2: And see that that to me, makes the argument that there is well. Actually, I have an even better way to make this argument. So um, we know that one of the things that happened was that yes, as as you're suggesting, women began to wear, wear pants in more and more situations, and probably wearing pants at home and wearing pants as casual wear or evening wear, um, you know, at night in their houses. But there was sort of a public problem with pants, and so um, Mary Tyler Moore, who uh, was one of the pioneers of pants on television, was. Before her death, talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air about this, I think you're going to hear both the voice of Mary Tyler Moore, Terry Gross, and I believe uh, Mary Tyler Moore's former husband, Grant Tinker.
5: I think we broke new ground, and and that was helped by my insistence on wearing pants, you know, jeans and capri pants at the time because I said I've, I've seen all the other actresses and they're always running the vacuum in these little flowered frocks with high heels on. And I don't do that, and I don't know any of my friends who do that. So why don't we try to make this real, and I'll dress on the show the way I do in real life. But it wasn't that easy. The sponsors were afraid you'd look <laughs> brazen. Right. They, they, they pointed specifically to, uh, they used a term, cupping under. And I can only assume that that meant my seat, that there was a little too much definition. And so they allowed me to continue to wear them in one episode one scene per episode and only after we checked to make sure that there was as little cupping under as possible <laughs> but um cupping under referring to the fit of your pants the fit of the pants on yes on your behind on my behind right but um, within a few weeks, we were we were sneaking them into a few other uh, scenes in every uh, episode, and and they were definitely cupping
2: under, and everyone thought it was great. <laughs> right. So there's no grand tinker there. All right. So so Kathleen Cooper, to me, there's a weird duality here because there's. Two ways in which pants get demonized, pants on women get demonized the way I look at it anyway, and you can help me out here one the one is uh, on the one hand it's too mannish it's mannish, uh, therefore, and that's maybe one of the reasons people go back and they quote the Bible about this and everything that you're dressing too much like a man. but then the other pole of opposition to pants is that they're too sexy that's obviously what Mary Tyler Moore is talking about right now that if they're if they're cupping under. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> that we can see the outline of the woman's gluteus, uh, and that's just going to drive us all into
3: in, insane. Which is the same argument they use now when they tell girls to go home from high school because they're wearing leggings. It's just, it's just driving the distracting the boys.
2: Right. So, uh, so, so it's kind of both of those things. But I think at a cer- certain point, there are ways in which the pants, in certain ways, are, are really overtly sexualized. And I think you allude to that, this in one of your articles. Uh, I think in particular of what we refer to as the cat suit. So the cat suit was in, uh, introduced to many of us by Emma Peel, played by Diana Rigg on The Avengers. But I even remember when Condoleezza Rice wore an outfit like that, and people went nuts. You oh, know? they
3: did. And when she was wearing it with boots, and they just went crazy.
2: Um so so there's that's obviously there's kind of a sense in which pants just can't win right either exactly. they're too mannish or they're too they're just too ultra womanish
3: right because they, it's all about policing women's behavior
2: right um we, we should just take a little moment uh, cuz it's one of the things that you write about uh, I also there's a couple of topics I want to get to before we go but um uh, you know it's also interesting to look <laughs> look at how we envision the future so We could spend all day talking about this, but I mean, certainly when people try to imagine the future, they're basically imagining some different version of the present. So um, Lieutenant Uhuru in the original Star Trek Trek, wore this kind of one piece mini dress, uh, and it really was a mini dress. Um, It
3: was very mini, yes.
2: (laughs) but, But by the next generation, Ensign Troy is wearing what? Kind of a unitard or something.
3: Right, exactly, and it was very close fitting. I I I feel kind of sorry for the actresses on that show because they couldn't possibly have eaten any extra lunch because every teeny tiny thing would show. Right, those things were skin tight.
2: Right, and it's it's actually one of the one of the if you don't have a choice about whether you're going to wear pants or a skirt, if you have to wear whatever somebody tells you to, you you often don't get to. Pick the thing that might flatter you the most, or conceal things that you might want to have uh, being concealed. So, but when we look at the think about the real future, I know in in your article you mentioned the notion of three D printers that maybe eventually, and I you sort of see it now with jeggings and jorts and male rompers, and there's like all this stuff going on where you just feel as though people, the individual person, might seize control and be a little less dependent on what fashion houses put out.
3: Exactly. There, there's. With um, modern fabrics, pretty soon we'll be able to choose to program the fabrics to look a certain way so that um, in certain situations you could make your clothes look more formal. And then in other situations, they could look more casual, like pajamas, but they would still be the same clothes.
2: Um I've been asked by the executive producer of our station, we may do this an entire show on this subject, but uh, I've been told that we would be remiss if we didn't briefly, anyway, address the question of pockets, uh, that women feel as though the, that women's pants have three kinds of pockets. They are either so small as to be useless, completely illusory or sewn shut or you know, fake or non-existent. That Those are the three kinds of women's pants pockets. So what's up with that?
3: Um, what is up with that? I think Personally, I think um, the designers are trying to one save fabric and two um, make them ornamental as possible. They, if you've ever tried. Uh, women's pants, well, I have tried them, of course. Um, You can't put your whole hand in them, unlike men's pants, where you can put things in the pants, in the pockets, so they're very practical. You put a wallet in there, your keys, you put all sorts of things. But women's pockets are too shallow to put your whole hand in. You can't put your wallet in there. You know, they assume that you're going to have a purse. And so, you know, the pockets are, if they're there at all, are mostly ornamental.
2: Right. Well we won't have true equality until women have cargo shorts. But exactly. then but then women are not gonna wear cargo shorts. I think we serve do <laughs> no, Right. <laughs> How do you know I'm not wearing cargo shorts right now? <laughs> um, so we should just say that this fight is it's not over, right? It's still an evolving oh, question. No.
3: It won't be over until men can wear skirts without being shamed.
2: Right. Well, I am obviously look forward to that. But, I mean, even uh, what was amazing uh, in your article, that Parisians had a law sitting on the books that went back to the French Revolution. I mean, they weren't enforcing it or anything, but, but, but they only recently repealed a law about women in pants. What was that?
3: That's true. The, it wasn't until the um, there was a woman in charge of the cultural concerns in Paris that she repealed that law, saying, why is this even left on the books? We should take that off. Women should never be at the uh you know, subjected to any policeman that wants to harass a woman because she's wearing something he doesn't approve of.
2: Right. I think the last thing you had to ask city officials for permission to wear pants. Exactly. Right. It just exactly. should be. Yeah. And
3: uh, women were constantly harassed um, for wearing pants, um, uh, even throughout the 20th century.
2: Right. Uh, well, fraternity, egality, and pants, obviously. Exactly. Uh, Kathleen Cooper, thank you so much for talking to us. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, and then we're going to introduce you, um, at least sort of secondhand, to that mountaineer that we began the show talking about.
5: With our pockets, we'd have to carry things loose. You need a pocket for combing your hair. Because when you're finished, your are Things come out of pockets, things you could not reproduce. Pockets can help you, but listen up there. There could be trouble, so, stranger, beware. Because lots of things go
0: into pockets. But never... Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea in a very sensible but flattering navy wrap dress from Talbot's and by me, Kion Wolf. I'm wearing peggings, which are like leggings, but with one wooden leg. They're very hard to picture. You have to see them. Amanda Fish does not wear pants on her tail. The part of Bill Curry was played by Queen Elizabeth II. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to see one of the good movies in a summer of film flops. And now, back to Colin.
2: Right. So we're going to finish where we began. And in a way... Uh, the appearance of this particular figure from history on this particular show, it's almost a little bit unfair because uh, Annie Smith Peck isn't famous for wearing pants. She's famous for something else, and she's worth talking about for a very different reason. Pants are kind of a supporting character in the Annie Smith Peck story. But it did sort of get us thinking about all this. So joining us is uh, Hannah Kimberly, teacher uh, at the Academy at Penguin Hall in Wenham, Massachusetts, and the author of A Woman's Place is at the Top, a biography of Annie Smith Peck Queen of the Climbers. This is a new book. And uh, so uh, Hannah Kimberly, um, before we get into the whole question of pants, let's talk about why we really should be talking about Annie Smith Peck. first of all, place her in in time and then tell us what she did.
6: Sure, Colin. Thank you for having me. Sure. So Annie Smith Peck was a turn-of-the-century woman. She was born in 1850, and she ended up becoming a professor, an author, a suffragist, and a political activist, along with also being a mountain climber. Um, so one of the most, I think, remarkable things about Annie is that she set high goals for herself and she never uh, stopped really too much to consider her age or her gender when it came to fulfilling her goals because she was somewhat of a late bloomer and was often told that she was either too old to, to accomplish what she accomplished or that she shouldn't be doing it because she was a woman.
2: But this is sort of a lifelong struggle, right? She had three brothers who were placed above her in terms of expectations.
6: Exactly. Exactly. So her brothers all got to go to college. Um, her father was college educated. And when it, she was the youngest of the siblings and when it came time for her to go, you know, her parents said, we, we just do not think that you should be going off to college. Uh, that kind of education is too much for a young woman.
2: Um so she does uh live a life she has uh she does get her uh, education she goes to the American School of Classical Studies in Athens and Greece um but she also starts mountaineering at a certain point i guess maybe in the 1880s uh she wasn't the first woman woman mountaineer by any stretch of the imagination so uh, let's talk a little bit about that and particularly about her ascent of the matterhorn
6: sure um so she she starts to climb around the 1880s um, while she's on vacation. She goes to Europe and does some climbing there as well. Um, And while she was in Europe, she had come across the Matterhorn and really wanted to climb it, but she did not have the 50 bucks um, that it took to hire a guide and to rent the equipment. So she was sort of a struggling student at the time. But she promised herself that eventually she would get back to the Matterhorn, and she did in 1895 when she was uh, 45. And uh, so she goes ahead and she has a great climb on the Matterhorn and, uh, and it was successful. But like you said, she was certainly not the first woman mountain climber and not even uh, one of the first mountain climbers to climb, uh, female climbers to climb the Matterhorn. Um, but what, what she did do was she climbed it wearing pants. And uh, this sort of, uh, she gained recognition for her climbing costume in the press. So instead of climbing in a long skirt or a dress, which most Victorian women climbers did at the time, Annie Peck climbed in pants. And this became something of, you know, a a major talking point uh, in the press.
2: Right. So the people who've been listening all along to the show kind of get it. But but I mean, in the 1890s, I think, could you get arrested for wearing pants uh, if you were a woman in public? You
6: you could indeed. On the year that she climbed the Matterhorn in 1895, women were in fact being arrested uh, for wearing uh, pants in the street. And uh, it was noted uh, noted as, uh, quote, an affront to men's attire was the uh, was the charge.
2: Now, I want to go back to these other women. These other women, uh, since um, Annie is um, heroic and, and pioneering in this way, that means these other women were climbing mountains and like really difficult mountains. The Matterhorn is not, so, you know, I couldn't climb the Matterhorn at any point in my life, I'm sure. Um, in dresses, though, I mean, how did that even work?
6: Right, so what they did was they would have, you know, sort of these large woolen breeches, um, and then over those would come a long uh, skirt, woolen skirt, and on top of that, uh, you know, a long coat that would go midway uh, to the calves, and you'd have these layers and layers of really impractical uh, clothing. Um, so it's interesting, and climbing uh, at the time uh, was very different than, you know, you can set the... The scene now, right, mm-hmm. uh, it's very different because there weren't um, uh, proper clothing. There, weren't, there wasn't Gore-Tex. There wasn't polar fleece. Um, the Sunscreen wasn't even yet invented. There were no uh, carabiners or crampons um, or medical oxygen or anything like that. Instead, they used ice axes and picks and rope to link everything together. So imagine doing all of that um, in a in a skirt,
2: right. So uh, one of the things that would make sense would be that some of the women who had done it that way would be maybe less than enamored by a woman who kind of got a putative advantage anyway by wearing pants. So tell us about, about Fanny Bullock Workman. She's one of the people who objected, right?
6: She was, and she was a rival uh, for a bit of time uh, uh, of Annie's, and uh, she definitely wore uh, the long skirts. Um, and she sort of picked on Annie in the press for wearing pants. Uh, she uh, eventually gained uh, Annie's uh, title of the highest altitude for women. Uh, but the press really sort of pitted them against each other. So, you know, workmen would say uh, things like, I don't have any desire to be mannish, uh, while noting that Annie Peck climbed in knickerbockers. And she would say, you know, I've never found it necessary to dispense with the skirt. And she was one of the characters who wore the ankle-length skirt over these heavy uh, woolen pants and then with uh, a long woolen coat over that. Uh, and in fact, she, you know, said that she once tripped on her hemline of her skirt and fell neck deep into this giant crevasse near Pinnacle Peak in the Himalayas. So her skirt nearly cost her her life.
2: Right. And I think the other thing that we, we need to wrap our minds around here uh, is that this is a time where, I don't know, there There aren't movie stars so much and there's no Taylor Swift and there's like all kinds of ways in which there aren't that many people to talk about. So somebody like this who was often photographed for newspapers and and things like that and and photographed on her adventures wearing pants. I mean, this was like a big talking point, right? People really, it wasn't just a bunch of mountaineers arguing about this. Society was arguing about it.
6: Exactly. Um, So there are loads of articles about uh, Annie Peck in the New York Times, over a hundred of them by or about her alone. Um, And a lot, so her, the earlier ones do highlight her climbs and many of the headlines, you know, are titled what she wears instead of where she climbed uh, or what she wore instead of reporting on her climbing feats. And I mean, of course, we still hear things uh, like this in the press today. Um, in terms of what uh, women are wearing over what they're doing. But at the same time, she sort of inspired reporters to question what it meant for women to step outside of the constrictions of womanly attire and then into, uh, you know, the professional realm. So, for instance, there was, uh, in 1898, the New York Times published an article that discussed how she sewed her own knickerbockers. Um, And the reporter said, you know, that people can't – cannot associate feminine traits with anything that they consider masculine in dress goes to prove a truism, and that is that there is very little uh, original thought in the world. Right.
2: Um, yeah. They so. they continue, it is the influence of precedence. That is what people think. The present world and its commonplaceness says that pretty soft gowns mean femininity and bifurcated garments, the reverse. And sewing is always part and parcel of femininity. But all this is not true. And Miss Annie S. Pack, when she took a vacation from her music and her studies or her cooking or whatever she happened to be engaged in at the time, sewed herself some garments and climbed a big mountain. So. I have to confess that I never heard of Annie Smith-Pack uh, until this, but obviously she's kind of a celebrity in her time, and, and then you sort of wonder how much of an impact this did have. I mean, it, was, it did the fact that she did this, and, and although she were, was maybe attacked by some people for doing it, she was also affirmed by others. Do you think it had an impact on mores overall?
6: some ways it did, especially when it came to her image in advertising. Um, so her her choice of clothing worked in a lot of ways to sort of traverse those confines that might normally have prevented her um, from, from exploration. And uh, she did whatever she could to raise funds for her next uh, exploration, her next climbing venture. So, for instance, in 1910, every Singer sewing machine um, uh, that went out that was sold uh, to people, there was postcards of Annie Peck um, in her and in, inside the sewing machine boxes, and the tagline was "Singer talks to thinking women." Hmm. Um, so, her image was used, I think, in a positive way. There were also um, trading cigarette cards a series of those uh, circa 1910 as well. And those were labeled um, World's Greatest Explorers, and it happened to be 25 male explorers and then Annie Peck. So uh, it's interesting uh, that, you know, it was a way to also help her get an international reputation as a climber, but then it went on to give her a platform on which to speak. And she was very politically active and was a stringent suffragist so uh, I think she took full advantage of it.
2: So um, we're running out of time here, uh, Hannah Kimberly, but you teach at an all-girls school, the Academy at Penguin Hall in Wenham, Massachusetts. It's not for penguins. It's for actual people. Uh, and um, so for, it's an all-girls school. You must, they must be aware of this story, your students. What does it mean to them? What do they take away when you talk about this book you read?
6: Well, my book just came out and school just started, uh, but the girls are actually listening in on this interview. So if they did not know, um, they know now uh, about it. But I would say that I hope that they, they would take away um, what I started off our conversation with, was don't let gender or age or anything else for that matter get in the way of what you want to do. And uh, for each time someone tells you no, uh, be like Annie Peck and respond, yes, I can, and then keep on trucking along.
2: Right. Because this isn't just a story about mountains or pants, as you say. It's a story about a woman who, at a certain age, even decided she was going to climb mountains, maybe after other people would have thought that they had lost their, you should pardon the expression, peak performance. Um, (laughs) And and a woman who did participate in the suffrage movement. I mean, this is all a a much larger package. But uh, so I think that's a great message. Well, listen uh, to you students. Hello, students at uh, Penguin Hall. And goodbye, (laughs) (laughs) Kimberly. uh, It's time to end this show. But it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks once again to, for, I want to mention uh, Hannah's book one more time, too. Uh, this is the book about Annie Smith Peck. Uh, it's called A Woman's Place is at the Top, a biography of Annie Smith Peck, queen of the climbers. Uh, thanks to uh, Josh Nilea, who conceived of the show. Kion wolf spin on the board making it sound good. We'll be back tomorrow with The Nose. Join us for that, too.
1: Listen to your woman guys
0: I'm in a same-sex relationship, and every now and then people will ask, well, which one of you wears the pants? And the answer is neither of us, and that's why it works.